At 3.30pm, the five suspects, still dressed in dark business suits, but stripped off their belts and ties, were led into the courtroom by a marshal. They seated themselves silently in a row and stared blankly toward the bench, kneading their hands. They looked nervous, respectful and tough. Earl Silbert, the government prosecutor, rose as their case was called by the clerk, slight, intent and owlish with his horn-rimmed glasses. He was known as Earl the Pearl to Fifth Streeters, familiar with his fondness for dramatic courtroom gestures and flowery speech. He argued that the five men should not be released on bond. They had given false names, had not cooperated with the police, possessed $2,300 in cold cash and had a tendency to travel abroad. They had been arrested in a professional burglary with a clandestine purpose. Silbert drew out the word clandestine. Ladies and gentlemen, Welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me today is a writer and hyphen and hyphen, <laughs> a whole bunch of other things, but there's a very short list of incredible both film minds, journalists, and film creators uh, that have, that if this project was going to exist, had to be on this list to make it happen. And I'm so glad that in the first 10 minutes of this project, you're hearing from this man. Um, he's a dear friend. He's a Steven Soderbergh obsessive, And he's one of those people who I just know understands why one would dedicate themselves to 138 episodes discussing this film. He's the legend that is Lee Zachariah. Lee, welcome to All the President's Minutes. Oh, thank you for having me. And thank you for that... Uh... So, over introduction, I'll take it, but uh, you're far too kind. Look, you know, you, you know this podcast game. Um, I'm very grateful for the amount of time that my guests spend with me because this, when, way back on One Heat Minute when I originally was talking about how long each episode would be, I remember one of my friends and I were like, oh, 15 minutes. But invariably, there will probably be 138 hours of all the President's <laughs> Minutes. And so I'm very grateful for your time because you are an insanely, insanely busy man. Talk to me a little bit about, before we dive straight into this minute, because I know that how familiar you are with it. Talk to me a little bit about what this movie means to you as a creative, because I know that you've, you, you've dabbled in screenwriting, you write scripts a lot for a lot of the audio and like stage productions that you've done in the past, television productions. What does this mean to you as a person, uh, you know, uh, a film who, who he, the Oscar-winning screenwriter is known as the patron saint of screenwriters like what does this mean to you um because i think that that's that's really going to set the scene for how how much we geek out on this thing together sure well i was i mean i was was thinking about this this today and and just you know before when you were saying what the hell do i call you now because i'm sort of (laughs) dabbling in different so many different things and i am you know my day job is essentially i'm a journalist but i've been you know working as a film critic for many years but beneath that you know writing films and trying to get the, you know, the filmmaking career thing happening. And so I'm sort of approaching a film like this from so many different angles. And it's one that I, it's the ultimate rewatchable film. And everyone I know who loves it can't get enough of it. Um, And I was trying to figure out why. And I I wonder if it's, if it's because it's, it's, such a we're drawn in by procedurals. You know, TV is filled with. You know, there was a time where you couldn't move for CSIs and NCISs <laughs> because we love seeing things get chipped away at. But 
there's also, you, you've also got studios and networks who say, uh, you've got to hook people in by having the romance angle and make sure you got a chase scene in here. And, you know, someone saves the cat. This is a film that managed to uh, circumvent all of that. Uh, there is no character trying to reconnect with their kid. There's no romantic subplot. There's no speech about what America stands for. It's the <laughs> ultimate just the facts man of films. We're not being told anything extraneous. And it's been, it feels like it's been entirely uh, 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 saved from uh, the curse of the focus group. And, and I wonder if it's because it's such a, a, a pure and interesting and real life story you know we know that these things all happened and I, I feel like a lot of films uh trade on based on a true story uh there are a lot of filmmakers who will make things up knowing that people will be more wowed than they normally would be because in the back of their mind they're going this all actually happened um i mean you know speaking of nixon frost nixon they didn't have that phone call chat that, you know, they didn't talk on the phone and have a, like that was just made up out of whole plot, but you're watching it going, this is extraordinary because you've been told it's based on a true story. And, this one actually is. And, and even more closely connected is a couple of great points I want to bring you up on, but, um, Bill Ibiri pointed out to me that there was a an adaption of The Final Days, which is the fo- immediate follow-up novel of the reporting of Woodward and Bernstein after All the President's Men, because essentially All the President's Men, the novel uh, that encompasses their work, takes us up to, you know, right into the thick of Nixon's, mm. you know, closest people being indicted. And mm. there's moments in The Final Days where, for a TV movie, it's absolutely brilliant. You know, amazing aesthetic choices, conversations where people are being contradictory and, and you're watching people, like, fall away. And then there's these really interesting, weird interludes where they, like, scope a character in a room and you hear their internal monologue for, like, a minute. And it's so weird. It's just, like, for a movie that sort of dabbles in authenticity and has all this, you know, like actual archival footage and is trying to replicate and be so on the button. It's like these added bits of internal monologues are clearly crowbarred into what is a factual fact-based thing. So it seems so incongruous when you talk about like, this is the moments where you're like, what was that person's motivation? What were they thinking? And it's like, it's way more interesting to not actually hear what they're thinking, just to wonder what the hell is this person thinking? And I think, I want to jump on one thing that you said, which I think is so on point, is the landscape of late 90s television especially dived into procedure in a way that I think we'd never seen before. And then there was just a glut. It was like, you know, kind of like the superhero genre in cinema now, but it's Mm. like a glut of like procedure. And what the opening seasons of all those shows that became so popular did was that they followed the procedure, but they understood that part of the process is failure. And then the formats became all about there will always be a resolution. It will always be neat and tidy because people only always want to jump in and out of this thing. And I think to the procedure nuts in us, this movie does something so wonderful, which is that it stalls and things fail and people stop talking and people don't want to talk anymore because they start to have ramifications of the things that they do. And so, you know, despite the grind, it does require true breakthroughs. And Mm. I think that what's so good about for, I think both of us, and I think we're going to dive into it in this scene is like, you get the procedure, you get the nuts and bolts, but it's also the failures and it's the flukes 
It's the flukes mm. of information that just don't seem right. There is something that doesn't seem right. I'm looking at this. It doesn't seem right. And you move into the, and it might take you down a rabbit hole. Just something there doesn't look right. And so, yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more that it's, mm. there's just something about this movie and how it takes all those things and becomes encompassing that you can go back to it so many, many times. I wish I could remember who said it. It was one of those, um, one of the, the great creators of, uh, oh, David Milch or um, David Simon or one of those sort of sort of great showrunners of that sort of HBO era of Sopranos, Wire, and so on. Uh, one of them said, if you want audiences to like a character, show them being good at their job. Yes, and it, it's so true because you know we love. Uh, you know, Sherlock or House or any number of characters who are sort of abrasive and asshole-ish but are so incredibly good at their job that we've sort of, we're enticed by that. Uh, I, I guess by the dichotomy of that. You know, Woodward and Bernstein aren't depicted as assholes and, you know, we don't even really delve into their character much. I mean, I, I love the moment, and you will definitely guess this later on, um, when uh, uh, Woodward says he's a Republican and Bernstein sort of does a double take at him. And like that, <laughs> that, that's about as much character as we get. Um, but, uh, that's but a we great do, double know, take. It's a it's but like, they are the so f- good. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. But they are so good at their jobs. Um, and, and we love watching them be good at their jobs. Um, so, yeah, yeah. No, I think, uh, I think that's part of it. I think, I think watching, watching people do something so interesting and do it so well and knowing that it's going to be so consequential uh, is and the fact that it's directed like a thriller, information as a thriller, yes. um, uh, draws a scene. And um, yeah, that's 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 probably why. Even now, having watched it two nights ago, I'm like itching to watch it again. I'm like, oh, I'd, I'd really like to, to give that another spin. Well, just try and stop yourself from watching it after I only make you watch one minute of it. This is <laughs> the seventh minute of Alan J. Pakula's 1976 masterpiece, All the President's Men produced by and starring Robert Redford and starring the great Dustin Hoffman, written by the incredible Bill Goldman. We're going to watch the seventh minute now. We're kicking off with a man standing in an apartment building trying to warn uh, his his counterparts, his uh, co-conspirators, uh, from some, some activity that's happening. Um, and we get to see, again, we've mentioned it in a previous episode, Anthony Manio, uh, not, I'm not going to mention F. Murray Abram. I'm going to mention Anthony Manio first to you, Lee, because uh, this yep. is the man that brings together Highlander, Weekend at Bernie's, and all the President's Men, which I just don't think we were ever going to get it, that triumph. It's an unappreciated <laughs> cinematic universe. I mean, I really, I really think Disney needs to sort of put that out again. Oh, look, what a, what a movie marathon. Uh, in the old parlance of what used to happen in Australia on a long weekend. Let's have a look at this minute now together, and then we're going to come back and talk about it. Some problem. Someone's here. Please! 
jacket. Walkie-talkie, two 35-millimeter cameras. Got it. That's so good. I, I, I just so good. love. I love. I just love the. You know, one of the things that gets said later in the film, and I'm probably going to repeat it a few ten, a few times. It's the you know the great deep throat line, which is these just weren't very bright guys, and Ooh. it seems so obvious from the outside of that building as their accomplices standing there on the walkie-talkie talking to them as they've turned it off, going you know there's someone there, there's someone there. It doesn't seem like a hard office to navigate in the in the in the light of day, you know. Even though you see their stupid torches flailing about, basically, um, very obviously. So you would imagine, you know, even Forrest Gump. I've completely forgot, but even Forrest Gump discovers that these Watergate guys are there and does a call through. Um, but there's a really there's really something great when they get in there and they just narrow down instantly that there's a problem. Bang! Here we are. They scout the building. They've got the tip off. And it's very easy for them to come through. Um, and just how completely in their huddled mass, ill-equipped they are for any kind of interruption to what they're doing. Yeah, they're, they're, there's certainly a feeling that, or a sense that they're untouchable at this point. You know, as we later learn, this isn't the first time they've done this. You know, they've been, no. they've been doing it at like democratic conventions, all these places around the country. And maybe they were, I don't know if it was the, specifically the same group of guys, but it was, you know, there's a feeling of cockiness uh, there. I, I, love, I love the guy who runs past saving his own skin. Yes. Uh, at the beginning. <laughs> it's right as fuck. But it's a really interesting minute. i got to say, you know, this is one of those films where, you know, I watched going, oh, I want to talk about that minute and that minute and that minute, and, you know, racked up just about the whole running time of the film saying that. <laughs> um, but, I, but this minute is actually quite um, uh, quite an interesting one and, and, and really sort of sets up the theme of the film, I think, because it, it, if you sort of look at that, I guess about a decade's worth of America being really, I guess it's institutions being demystified. Yes. You know, over the course of a decade, you've got JFK, RFK, Martin Luther King assassinated. You've got Vietnam, and for the first time ever, sort of those real-time images of war, uh, and, and then the protests that arose from that. And then you've got Watergate. And all of these yes. institutions are coming crashing down, and the image of a respectable men in suits is 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 no longer you know something to look up to 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 respect. America is losing its innocence in a way, and seeing that its leaders aren't perfect, and there is no perfect image, and it, it absolutely blows my mind that every detail of this is accurate. Every this isn't uh, filmmaker license. You've got 1970s hippie plainclothes cops. Cops who are undercover to do drug busts because the uniformed cops there aren't any available in the area. They get they're getting they're getting petrol. These guys are the only ones nearby, and they're in plain clothes. They're dressed as hippies, and they're hunting the men in suits. And you can almost see it on F. Murray Abraham's face when he sees them for the first time. It's like, what the hell? I thought you guys were going to be some low level thugs. And you know, drop the jacket. You know, that's that's the one bit of license I think you probably get in. Maybe not. Maybe you actually said that, but drop the jacket is just like. Yeah, drop the facade. Drop that you guys are men in suits. This is the complete reversal of what we've, we've seen in pop culture up until that point. We've got the hippies taking down the guys in the suits. And it just sets up what it is we're in for. This just, you know, an entire film sort of people trying to come to terms with the idea that corruption is happening at the highest level. And it's such, just in that one minute, you get that whole thing set up. So perfect as well. And it's the fact that they get the access to the building unimpeded because they look like hippies. You know, their spy on the outside just says there's activity. He doesn't say there are cops. If a cop car pulls up out the front of that building, 
those guys get out of there. Watergate never it's happens. Like flashing light. Yeah, yeah. Like it's That's a, sli- a really good point. It's a sliding door moment. The cops are here. Get the frack out of there, basically. Go. They they walk out the door. They're untouchable. They maintain well, they that. Should, they switch their radio off, but they can still see the blue and the red shining through from the bottom. You know, something, you know, even their yeah. stupidity of switching the radio off is Some- o- o- overcome by them actually seeing the lights. Yeah, and yeah. It's, it's one of those moments where you go, like that sliding doors moment there instantaneously of that hippies, and I, I love that you put it together because I hadn't put it together until this moment, but it's just like, and there is something so magnificent on F. Murray Abrams' face because it's, he's sort of got this hard-nosed face. Like he's, he's, he looks very hard and it's probably his most harsh. He's known for being so soft and then going a bit mad, but there's this harshness on his face and his gun. And like you said, it is, I never realized, I never articulate what it is before, but it's, it's, it's confusion. It's like how yeah. many break-ins have I walked into in my entire career as a police officer and none of them have been douchebags in suits who yeah. have got like sticky tape around their gloves like nonsense. It's none of it has ever looked like that. And you're so right. This is, you know, I guess my fascination, I haven't talked about it yet on the show, but I'll talk to you now. My fascination with this movie came when I discovered what's sort of, lovingly called now new Hollywood. And it was a time really from like 1968. It's usually marked with the, you know, the, the work of um, Nick Cassavetes um, yep. and it's uh, as, as a filmmaker, sorry, John Cassavetes. It's usually marked with John Cassavetes, career in sort of 1968 mm. all the way through to 1980. Um, and some people will go as far as to say that it goes to 75, the minute mm-hmm. the jaws is released. But I say it goes really up yeah. to raging bull. <laughs> Is is right. kind of, is kind of my thing, and so you know, it's the Raging Bulls and Easy Rider is the is the novel that sort of popularized the term New Hollywood, and it became this sort of auteurist surge because Hollywood ran out of money, they didn't know what to do, and they gave a stack of it, a whole bunch of these dying studios. It was a time of flux, gave money to young and interesting filmmakers to make films, and I guess one of those things is you start to besides digging under, okay, well, why did it happen at this time? Um, you start to dig into the films that were made based on that time. Like what, what is the ecosystem that creates Hollywood to be at this level? And exactly it was all the things you talked about. It's the Vietnam war. It's, it's changing of, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, the, the hippie movement just in general, but it's also the, the civil rights movement. And so it's this, this becomes one of the last nails in the coffin of, you know, American triumphalist sort of, world police as we later popularize the term like where people are happy that these are these you know this shining star that is out there um this superpower because they become as crooked and as corrupt as anyone else in this moment and so it becomes this it it, it's it's such a it's such a a sort of magical time and it it bleeds into all while Watergate is directly, t- you know, while, sorry, all the president's men is directly tangling with Watergate in 1976 when the film is made and, you know, between 72 and 76 when it's being produced ultimately behind the scenes, it's all feeding this stuff in. Um, and so like, you know, you look at 1972 and, and I only just thought of this, what, thinking about this film the other day was this little film called The Godfather made in 1972. I've heard of that. You've heard yeah. of it. I've heard of that one. And there's a great exchange that happens between Michael Corleone and Kay, eventually Kay Corleone, um, at the end of the film, towards the end of the film. 
where he says, my father is no different than any other powerful man, any man who's responsible for other people, like a senator or a president. And Kay says to him, do you know how naive you sound, Michael? Why? Senators and presidents don't have men killed. Oh, who's being naive, Kay? Like that, that, that is, if, even though this movie is set really in that intra, you know, intra-war period, essentially, um, it's, that's as 1972 as it gets, <laughs> that, yeah. that sentiment. It, it's definitely, there's something in the air at the time, and um, definitely, if I could get in a, a quick plug for something that doesn't really exist anymore, um, my, my, on my podcast, Tellers for Hyphenates, where, you know, we go through, uh, as you know, because you were on it uh, at least once, um, talking through the, the, the films of the filmmaker uh, with a guest, um, I, I actually did the, the films of Alan J. Pakula uh, a couple of years ago with Alex Ross Perry, the director oh. of Her Smell and Listen Up, Philip and Queen of Earth. And it was a really great chat. And he actually talked about the fact that Pakula isn't really recognized as when, when you talk about New Hollywood, there are a lot of names that come out. And Pakula rarely gets mentioned, even though he was so integral to that. Yeah, um, he, ma- he made like three of the biggest movies of that period, like <laughs> the three of the seminal movies of that period. You can't have yeah, you, you can't have New Hollywood without Clute Parallax View and then all the presidents meant. They don't like New Hollywood doesn't exist without those three movies. Yeah, so we've got to get Pakula back up his name back up with the big boys. Um, it's uh, yeah, yeah, it's 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 interesting um, how the politics of of the time feeds into the cinema. Um, the Bilga said in episode one, have I pronounced that name correctly? Yeah, Bilga. Yeah. I kept I kept practicing it, and now I'm <laughs> feeling bad that I'm hanging a lantern on it. Um, so back back in episode one of this show, he I found it interesting the way he was talking about Americans are proud that they don't have a king. Yes, and I would I don't disagree with that, but I'd augment it slightly because the one thing I've always found fascinating about American politics is the fact that it seems almost entirely defined by the fact that they overthrew a king. You know, federal politics is defined by that. And so they've set up a system where they can overthrow their king every four to eight years. And <laughs> it doesn't work unless you build a president up into a king in the first place. So I think they like to be ruled. I think, I think there's, a, there's a segment of America that likes the idea of kings and royalties and, uh, royalty and, you know, just having someone with, just a massive amount of power. They love the pomp and ceremony of the president. They love that he can, you know, order an airstrike at the drop of a hat. Uh, there seems to be sort of that, that fascination running through uh, through America. And I, I, and I honestly think it's, it's the, the getting the chance to overthrow a king and relive your proudest moment in history <laughs> uh, is, is key, is integral to the American psyche. And, and, uh, and in this moment, what better? Mm. What better way? It's not. A, it's not only the political mechanism, the machine that gets to overthrow the king, but I think what's great about this is that it's throwing the spanner in the works from someone who's not allowed to throw overthrow the king. They only let certain people overthrow the kingly. That's the other crazy thing is that like there's this insulated, beautiful machine in that same episode that Bilger talked about. This like the inference of the machine that. You know, he's coming down from on high, Nixon at the beginning of the film in his helicopter coming down from on high. The inference of the machine is that he's not going to be touchable. And even if he is, 
it's very tenuous you know and i think as we go through the progress of this show we're going to learn you know we're going to sort of articulate some facts that are already out there in the final days like as an example you know the special you know nixon got to sack his mueller like to use the parlance of our time, like a guy who was investigating him, who was a special appointment by the Senate, who was like yeah. asking for more Nixon sacked that guy. It was a lawyer by the surname by the name of Cox, and he just sacked him. And it would be like Trump sacking Mueller, but I think you know when we're comparing. Yeah, what was it the Saturday Night Massacre? They called it the yes. uh, yeah, and yeah. Saturday Night Massacre because he sacked he sacked him, and then he's actually the Attorney General who he asked to do to 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 do the sacking didn't take undertake the order so then he resigned was sacked mm. and then his second in charge got asked to do the same thing and then was sacked so three people in one night were just complete like the you know some of the central core of the american political establishment when it comes to like the highest law offices in the country just went one two three see you later and isn't that such a big deal now when we look back at that time and you think Wow, the, the 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 whole Watergate thing was a big smear on America, and now in the in twenty nineteen, it looks like what was their best moment? Where where in in some ways, I mean, the mechanism didn't work perfectly. Um, they stonewalled investigations. They fired people, and in the end, he resigned uh, after the threat of uh, of impeachment was raised. He wasn't actually impeached, um, but the but we look at that now. I mean, we're living. I, I think there's. It's always been an appealing film, regardless of, of whether we're living in a hopeful time, whether you like your president or don't like the president, whether you feel good about where democracy is headed or not. It's always been an addictive film, but I feel it's appealing right now because of the idea that the film is based around, which is that norms matter and that there are a list of rules. And if, if even if the powerful break them, they will still suffer consequences because the society is based on those, those rules. And, you know, we're living in a time now where, you know, several of Trump's closest advisors have been sentenced to prison. You know, his former campaign chairman, a former campaign official, two of his former campaign advisors, <laughs> his former lawyer, uh, the president himself is an, has been named as an unindicted co-conspirator. Conspiracy, conspirator? I almost got that word out. Um, so he was recently barred from operating a charity because he committed fraud. And... Like that barely made that was barely a headline. This happened in the last few weeks. Yeah, you know, he's he's been sued for rape. He's gone bankrupt. He's broken numerous laws, threatened war crimes, pardoned war criminals. He's been linked to pedophiles. He's invited foreign governments to interfere in U.S. elections. He's been impeached. And as we record this, he appears to be plunging the U.S. into war with Iran because he doesn't understand how consequences work. And we're yet to see any tangible evidence that it's harmed him, or that there's more than a couple of you know conscientious Republicans willing to call him out. All the president's men is a bomb in this day and age. We, it, it, it's an absolute, you know, for, for two and a half hours, I can, I can watch that and believe that I live in a world where there are consequences, where you will be, <laughs> you will be brought down if you do the wrong thing. And it's just the opposite of what the news is right now. That was my favorite rant of the show so far. <laughs> that was my favorite of the show. I, I'm sorry that I sort of sat back, but I had to give Lee that platform because you're right. It is a bomb. And, but it's, it's like an approach to life. It's, it's that struggle of when there is no justice, you just, these guys are, they are a salve for that when you feel like justice isn't being lived because you're like, this is something keeping it in check. And I don't, you know, my, 
I was I, I did another podcast with a guest who's been a guest of One Heat Minute Productions, but I was doing a podcast called The Take, and my friend Sean Burns, who's a great Bostonian critic who will make be a guest on this show, was talking about like his you know we're sort of Gen Xers, Lee and I, sort sort of you know. Je- I, I'm, I think right on the cusp. I I'm think a- I, I'm. I'm borderline. I'm on. I'm on. I'm on the border too. But I think maybe it's yeah. because my brother and sister, who are a couple of years older than me, are like firmly Gen Xers, and I kind of like that. That yeah. kind of makes me, you know, by association, I've always thought of myself as a bit of a Gen Xer. But Sean was talking about himself, and he said, "Look, as a Gen Xer, we were kind of we were kind of raised to question power and question mm-hmm. when everyone and and in his particular thing was like when everyone likes something, I don't like it immediately because it's just my reflexive thing is." my default setting is to not trust power, to not trust the crowd, to not trust. And I think that this, what that's one of those things exactly like you said, it's like this movie does that all the time. It's just asking questions of things that seem out of place that people are glossing over. And in this particular minute that you're talking about here, it's just one of those great things because you start to hear, um, you, you start to hear the different, things that Jack Warden's Harry Rosenfeld starts to ask, which is, oh, walkie-talkie, you know, a thousand bucks, five guys in suits, Democratic National Committee. And he just sort of starts going, okay, okay. And it's just like, these pieces are wrong. Nowhere near as obvious as the thread of things that you called out. But like, what happens is even that smaller level of detail, journalists are there and people seeking the truth are there to just keep shit in check. What is wrong with this picture? And there is nothing wrong with all the president's men, but I love that ethos of what is wrong with this picture. And mm. you and you can feel like this in your own life, I feel like. It's like you can feel like, God, I'm not getting it. But it's just like there are people like these guys that are just chipping away. They're just chipping away at it. And there's gonna be there's gonna be heartache and there's gonna be there's gonna be roadblocks, but it's like this is the salve for our time. It's like and mm. and God, you're just hoping you know, because it could still happen. You've still got Snowdens, and you've still got the amazing, um, you know, you know, the amazing reporting of like a Ronan Farrow. Like you got like, it's happening now. Like people are reporting on stuff. People are blowing the whistle, but it's like it just doesn't seem to register because the madness is so omnipresent. It, it's kind of like we can handle one crime, we can't handle infinite crimes all being shattered to us at once. <laughs> and I honestly think that's true. I think that's the reason he was so swiftly impeached. Trump was, was because it was about one thing. Uh, they impeached him based on one specific crime, and or two, two rather, uh, relating relating to the same thing, and, and sort of kept the inquiries open. But we actually can't handle uh, more than one piece of information at a time, and, and nothing breaks through. Um, I, I, I feel like I've sort of talked about the film as a critic, and I've talked about it a bit as a journalist, sort of comparing it to real life. I'd like to talk about it as a filmmaker for a second, because I honestly have a, a theory that um, or, or at least a feeling that there is no serious dramatic filmmaker who doesn't want to make all the president's men. Love I think there's a reason um, uh, Spielberg sort of designed the post as, as, as the same characters, many of the same characters, but really setting it up as a prequel for all the president's men. Um, uh, you, you added me as a big Soderberg uh, fan earlier. He, he blesses us with, on his blog, he publishes a list of everything he's seen, read, and heard over the course of the year. And uh, it's possible that I went through and counted uh, <laughs> every time he watched All the President's Men going back to 2009. And in the last decade, 
Steven Soderbergh has watched All the President's Men 15 times. And who can blame him? Um, and I, I, was, I was actually thinking back to some of my own work. Uh, a couple of years ago, I sold uh, a pilot for a one-hour drama series about journalists, about journalism and about newspapers. And I wasn't consciously thinking about All the President's Men, but I know looking back at it, there was absolutely a part of my brain that just desperately wanted to to make it a Woodward and Bernstein type investigation. I desperately want to see you. I desperately want to see the Lee Zachariah pilot get made. God damn it! Where is it? Where is it, Lee? What well, the- well, no, no network bought it. The rights went back to me, and uh, I don't know what to do with it now. But, um, but it, you know, I made some money off it, so that's one thing. That's but, good. Uh, I don't know. J- journalism is changing so much with this pilot that I wrote in 2016. I almost feel like. It was about where journalism was in that time. And I feel like, uh, what are we, four years later, um, it's changed so much. The world's changed too much for, for everything I talked about to be relevant. Uh, maybe maybe just in, in small ways, but I feel like the conversation's moved on to a different point, which might be another reason why it's so comforting to watch all the president's <laughs> men where you're like, Oh, journalism still valued. People still read newspapers. You know, there's sort of uh, there's an old people will still pay. People will still pay for your writing, for the efforts, for the lack of yeah. social life, for the countless hours that you spend in offices for toiling. There's, there's money in it. There's absolutely money in it. But it's also you know, but it's, it's also a physical thing. I mean, think about how um how deep throat gets in contact uh, with with with. Uh, Woodward, he, he writes in on, what, on page 24 of his newspaper. He's not like writing on page, he's not sending a tweet. You know, these are- <laughs> Slide in my DMs, baby. <laughs> That's right. No, there's, a, there's an absolute physicality and tangibility to the news and that it has a physical presence. And I think, I think in, in, in an age where everything feels inconsequential because there's so much news and part of that, part of the message is the media. You know, we have digital channels which can just feed us news constantly mm. and nothing feels real. And part of that is the fact that it isn't real. It's just bits of data flying around. And I think there is something very, you know, watching these characters type on typewriters, watching these newspapers get printed, watching people read them, there is something very real about this film. And I think it's going to, you know, it's frozen in time and I don't think there will ever be a time where people don't look back at it as something special, both as a political um, an, an example of, of, of you know how you can bring down corruption in politics, but also an, as an example of how journalism works. I think I think the film is timeless. Does journalism still work like this, Lee? Because uh, I because ov- overtly yeah. you can just say like layering. Obviously, um, you know the layers are different. You know, there's not a lot of copy editors. Everything's digital, etc. You know, there's no one. And I'm going to say this so many times, people are going to get sick of it, but no one gleefully putting their feet up on a table and striking a piece of paper with a red pen. It's nothing, uh, as, nothing as much of a flex or anything more uh, awesome than that. No, no, there, there is still, there are still versions of that. I, um, you know, we'll, we'll put our feet up on desks. Uh, you know, <laughs> there's another producer at work with this ball and we like throw it across when we, you know, kind of just need to, to sort of, we're sitting down writing for five hours and we need some physicality and we throw this like really heavy ball at each other and catch it and freak everyone around us, you know, so there's sort of that. There's also, I've also got, you know, um, my bosses who will look at a script, realize it's too long and sort of put it on a keyboard, we'll put a strike through a paragraph <laughs> and that is digital red pen. So, you know what, the, <laughs> the, strike through. the spirit of the strike through lives. I promise you that. 
Um, but uh, uh, what's weird um, is I feel like, and you know, this is a it's a film that's come up, and it's often it's going to be talked about in in lots of episodes of this show for roundabout ways. But it's you know, I think we're like heading in twenty twenty is like the post. It's like the post Facebook era because Facebook has like been this omnipresent thing in our lives for almost a decade. And it's sort of, it became its own conglomerate of like all the news that you could have, all of your friends, all of the products you could possibly want, all of the outlets you could possibly want centrally. And then its own consistent fuckery, <laughs> literally, um, that should be litigated like anything else. Um, and, and Cambridge Analytica and all of those, all of those things. It feels like we're like on the precipice of, you know, that, you know, monolithic thing being Facebook is kind of going to blow itself away shortly. Because if you look at the next generation who are coming up, they're all on like TikTok and Instagram. They're barely touching Facebook. Twitter is kind of keeping its own balance out there, but it's not necessarily, you know, um, it's not necessarily been ever been the sort of monolithic sides that Facebook's had. So do you feel like, and, and, and also there's these other weird movements, like, and I found it myself is there's like these phones that are coming now that are, that are just phones. They're just like text messages, an yeah. Uber app, and it's the vinyl resurgence. Yeah, of the yeah, yeah, it's like the, that vinyl. Like it's sort of it's sort of coming back and giving people an option to go. You know, this thing that impulsively makes you look at it. You know, your your black mirror, literally your little black mirror that you're holding in your hands mm. and nursing everywhere, is. It, we understand the impulse that you have, and it's hard. Um, so, do you feel like it's coming around? Because I feel like. I feel like some days I think that it is and others I don't. And especially in our current political climate in Australia and some of the crises that we're facing right now. And I didn't do this a lot when we were, we did heat, but we're recording this on the 8th of January, 2020. And, but I, but I feel like some of that rigorous journalism and inquisition and not looking at face value things that politics have said when there's been consequences to the public well-being has been as rigorous, as tough, as outspoken and as kind of like, I don't know, it kind of heartening <laughs> to see that there's yeah. still that, that unrelenting. Do you think it's like turning? Do you have a feeling? I, I don't I don't know. I, I want to believe that it is. I don't – I haven't seen – I know you're right about kids not being on Facebook. I, I, they're not the ones I'm worried about. I'm worried about all the, the you know voters over 50 who believe <laughs> everything they read on Facebook. Um, I'm worried about TikTok being owned by China. I feel like <laughs> we haven't seen yeah. how that's going to play out yet. Uh, Twitter is, is quite inconsequential. It's just um, journalists and bots yelling at each other all day. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like, I mean, there are rigorous journalists. Uh, the ABC um, just, you know, their journalism literally saved lives over the past few weeks. You know, there are people who are alive because the ABC reports in a way that I don't even think is any news organization in the world that operates the way they do. Um, it's an absolute public service. And, you know, on, in, in my little corner of the world, I did a bushfire story yesterday and we were on the phone to, um, to, I think it was the police, like right up until airtime, just making sure, you know, there's still two missing persons. No, one of them has been found. All right, we'll change the intro. One, one person's still missing. And then, Suddenly they found the other person and we're like trying to just trying to make sure every detail is as absolutely accurate as possible right up to the minute. You know, we're calling the media people of, of the fire brigade and the, you know, RFS and the police, you know, we're, we're 
we're doing our best to make sure it's all accurate. But at the same time, every article about the fire today, almost every fire has been about the misinformation that's been spread. Uh, even in something like a fire where you think we can all agree that fire is, but you know, we're all on the same side <laughs> of this, right? We're all anti-fire. And you kind of, there's a naivety where you think we can all pull together on this, no matter what your politics. But no, because it, it is such a, a politically charged uh, uh, issue with, you know, everything about the, the prime minister being on holiday and then, the, you know, him saying they absolutely accept the link between fires and climate change and, and then one of his backbenchers going on, you know, British television was saying, no, there is no link. I'm sorry, I don't mean to go down a whole rabbit hole with here, but <laughs> no, this so is, many articles. Like, what I used say, to say with Heat is yeah. going down a Michael Mann rabbit hole or going down a De Niro rabbit hole or going down a Pacino rabbit hole. One of the places that this show is going to go is going to go into political stuff. And I think that if anyone's listening internationally right now, I think they might find it interesting that, you know, that their impulse to talk about politics, especially and or to hear about Australian politics and hear about the fuckery of Australian politics, which I, I think is going to be a topic of this show. Um, yeah. is, uh, I think, I think it's interesting for you to say, so please well, continue. It's certainly, well, it's certainly an international story, you know, like this is, this is something about Australia that's made the world really pick up and take notice. But today, just so many stories about the misinformation about, uh, the role of arsonists in these fires. And the role of the Greens, whether they in fact stopped backburning, which some people believe would have prevented the fires from coming as big as they were. You know, it's just so many articles specifically today, as you say, 8th of January, 2020, you know, do a Google news search for the articles that came out that day on the fire. And so many of them are fact checking all the misinformation that's out there. And that's about fire. You know, I, when it comes to politics, where lying is the coin of the realm, I don't even know. I mean, I'd like to believe that we're in a, post-Facebook era, um, I, I don't think we are. I, I, I feel like this is going to be a very, very ugly, this US presidential election we're heading into is going to be so much uglier than the last one. And um, I don't know, there are some amazing journalists out there. I don't know if we have the, the collective societal will for them to break through and, you know, break through the noise. Uh, but we'll see. Um, it, it's going to be really interesting. I feel like there are going to be a lot of people feeling bad and then watching all the presidents men to feel better. I know I'll probably be one of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? That's a short one, but I think that that's exactly where I want to end because there is no way that this show will go on without you hearing from my amazing guest, Lee Zachariah again. Thank you so much for being a part of this show. Thank you for being a part of this minute. And, and I think there's so much more that we can absolutely cover talking about this film but i want i want lee to dive in with me when the writing is at its most william goldman when when its direction is at its most alan pakula and as the host of i'm going to say it the greatest australian movie podcast that's ever graced the airwaves hell is for hyphenates which cataloged in depth a whole stack of vulgar or tourists being vulgar or tourist together for more than a hundred episodes. And I was blessed to be part of it more than once. Um, thank you so much for your insights. Lee Zachariah, thank you so much for being a part of the show. Thank you, Blake. It's a real honor to be part of it. And you'll be back. Yes, I will be back. I would be honored to be back. Try and keep me away. You're going to have to, you know, change your Skype password, <laughs> lock your doors to prevent me from being on every episode of the show. Look, uh, I but yeah, I, I, I can't think, wait to hear. I think, I, I think you need to be back. 
and I have to promise you something. If one of the one of the I I like to throw out, I didn't like to throw out at the beginning of the show of One Heat Minute because it wasn't even conscionable that Michael Mann would come on the show, and obviously, two of the greatest creatives that have ever existed in in American cinema, Alan J. Pakula and William Goldman, have passed away, and so they're they're not going to be here. There are really then a big four, the big four that are left, because so many of the wonderful people that have passed on, um, uh, you know, so many people in this film have passed on. So the big four are obviously Woodward and Bernstein themselves, and then our cinematic Woodwards and Bernsteins, Dustin Hoffman and Robert Redford. But there's kind of a fifth wheel there, which is Steven Soderbergh. And I have to promise you that if I find (laughs) out that Steven Soderbergh... If Steven Soderbergh, yeah. I'm going to throw this out there right now. It's only the seven minutes. We have 131 episodes left of this show. I would love to talk to... That would be one person that I would love to talk about. And if I know that he's coming in advance, I'm just letting you know, Lee, I'm going to call you and I'm going to say yeah. there is a microphone and I'm going to just tilt my camera. There's a microphone sitting across the table. There's no one better to co-host that episode. So I'm promising you the co-pilot's chair... Steven Soderbergh, Thank if you're you. listening, you have to. Keith, you have to. I love you show. for this. I love you for this. But um, uh, I think he's probably wise enough to avoid the obsessive stalker fans. <laughs> so my presence might actually have the opposite effect. Uh, <laughs> but we'll, we'll burn that bridge when we come to it. We will burn it when we come to it. Just like the Washington Post coverage of Watergate, this podcast is the result of a collaborative effort. Thank you so much to the amazing Lee Zachariah. If you want to find where Lee is, the best place to find him is on Twitter at Lee Zachariah, L-E-E-Z-A-C-H-A-R-I-A-H. He has written across many publications and you will see him around the place, but that is a good place to start. And of course, if you want to go to the back catalogue of Australia, one of the show's great movie podcasts of all time, Hell is for Hyphenates. It's all there and there are some secret things are bubbling. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you guys want to continue to support this podcast, please listen, subscribe, rate, review to not only um, the One Heat Minute Productions feed, but if you want to go and uh, lay a comment or a review, or, or, that would be amazing. Thank you so much. Um, if you do have a few extra bucks, One Heat Minute Production survives by your donations. So there's a link to our Patreon on oneheatminute.com. But until then, catch you another episode of all the President's Minutes. We get a note, page 24 of The Times. <laughs>